0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Aspen Daily News. My name is Greg Stewart. SkiCo aims to feed appetites of diners at Snowmass. Two new restaurants redeveloped guler Outlined in Master Plan. Article by Scott Condon from the Tuesday, February 14 edition of Aspen Daily News Online. When Aspen Skiing Company unveiled its updated master development plan for snow ski area last week, several new and replacement chairlifts were the eye-catchers, but there are also big plans for upgraded on-mountain dining. Skiko outlined plans to build two new restaurants on the slopes as well as redevelop the Ullerhof and add to the capacity at Sam's and the Lynn britt cabin. Here's a buzzkill when you pop into a restaurant after working up an appetite like only skiers and snowboarders can, not finding a place to sit. Skiko's website on the planned improvement said Snow masses on mountain restaurants accommodate too few people on the busiest days, never mind accounting for modest growth in skier volume in the future the master development plan is essentially a wish list of possible projects that Skiko would like to pursue over the last decade or so however as the document states some projects never advance past the dream stage officials in Skiko's planning department said that expanding food and beverage seating is a priority only behind increasing chairlift capacity out of the Fannie Hill base Following uh, is Co's plan for mountain restaurants as outlined in the master development plan submitted to the U.S. Forest Service. Redeveloped Ullerhof. A major redevelopment would utilize some of the existing building, but the new structure would be expanded by roughly 28,000 square feet to the west. The seating would be expanded by 250 to 500 seats. The Ullerhof is located near the bottom terminal of the Big Burn chairlift. A third level will be added with entry from the trail occurring upslope of the existing structure, and the restaurant will expand out over the deck on the first and second levels, the master plan said. New Alpine Springs Restaurant. A new structure is planned on the base of the Alpine Springs chairlift on the uphill side of where the Naked Lady and Slider trails meet. The new two-level restaurant would seat 400 people. The site was chosen due to ease of access from almost every lift on the mountain, the master plan said. Access from every lift? Uh, Readers question, uh, additional on-mountain guest services space is needed in this location to take pressure off of Elk Camp, Ullerhof, and High Alpine restaurants. New Gunners View Restaurant a small facility with indoor seating for about a hundred people and an outdoor deck for another 100 is planned on the Gunnards View Trail on the Elk Camp section of the mountain. Additional on-mountain guest service space would take pressure off of Elk Camp Restaurant, the master plan said. Expanded Sam's Ski, rather expanded Sam's. SkiCo plans to replace the Village Express uh, chairlift with a gondola featuring 10 passenger cabins. A gondola featuring 10 passenger cabins? Uh, The company envisions that uh, additional... that addition turning Sam's into a more popular destination for skiers, sightseers, and attendees of special events. The expansion would expand Interior seating by about 50 and add extensive deck seating. Tweaks Lynn Britt Cabin and Spider Savage Race Arena. Uh, minor improvements and expansions are planned for these special venues. Uh, Skiko said its analysis of food service eating showed deficiencies in seating at Sam's and Elk Camp restaurants and an underutilization of Ullerhof. The upgrade of the village express to a gondola is expected to create more demand at Ullerhof, which will be handled with the expansion. The master plan said the restaurants at Snowmass can handle the crowds of, dinner, of diners crowds of dinners <laughs> sufficiently when all outdoor seats can be used, but weather often makes that impractical. There are currently uh, 2,882 indoor seats at the company's base area and on-mountain restaurants, along with 1,945 outdoor seats, according to the master plan. SkiCo's web page noted that any redevelopments or new r- restaurants will undertake quote best practices in green development and sustainability. The Aspen Daily News reported Friday that SkiCo's Master development plan features several lift upgrades. In addition to the Village Express gondola, SkiCo aims to replace the Coney Glade chairlift and pull the bottom terminal down to a level on Fanny Hill across from the Snowmass Mall. That will give riders another option for accessing the ski area. Other plans include replacing the Alpine Springs and Elk Camp high-speed quad chairlifts with six-pack lifts, building a new lift on the western section of the Burnt Mountain, replacing the surface lift, and building a storage building for the chairs on the Big Burn lift. The Master Development Plan has been accepted by the White River National Forest and deemed compatible with the Forest Plan, a guideline document Specific projects would need further environmental review when Ski Code decided to pursue them. Uh, the master plan will also be submitted to the Snowmass Village Town Government for separate review. And now, Aspen Council says slow down, not ready for RFPs on New Castle Creek Bridge. Council asks for more community engagement before project moves into design. Article by Megan Weber. The Council Chambers at Aspen City Hall, we're filled with Aspen residents at Monday's Aspen City Council work session as concerned community members waited to hear the City's update on the new Castle Creek Bridge project and the Council's decisions on next steps. City staff presented results from the 2022 public outreach campaign and asked the council for feedback on the project's next phase, which would include more community communication and hiring an engineer firm, engineering firm rather to help the project move into the design process. The council was supportive of the former, but asked staff to hold off on the latter. Some people in the community asked, Why do we have to talk about this again? And then other people in the community asked, Why is the city still talking about this? Will you just go ahead and build the bridge? That is absolutely the range of sentiments, said Diane Foster, assistant city manager. Foster said there are two reasons why the city feels that now is the time to readdress the bridge. First, the bridge is nearing the end of its useful life and, although it is currently safe to use, it was not designed to sustain the volume of traffic that uses it on a daily basis. The bridge was built in 1961 and designed for a 75-year life. Second, increased wildfire risk has presented a need for additional evacuation routes. When it came to community feedback, Foster said the city heard from a range of people who did not support the project, supported a different project, or supported the preferred alternative as the project is named in the 1998 Record of Decision. One audience that we don't have up here and that we actually realized in our rehearsal was an audience we talked to, but I don't have it on this slide, and that is directly impacted commuters," Foster said. Most of those wanted a new bridge, some wanted the preferred alternative, as is, and others wanted the solution that would solve traffic for single occupancy vehicles. Foster also noted that the city has heard feedback from multiple groups of residents who support different solutions or aspects of the preferred alternative. One such group, known as the Friends of Castle Creek, is a group of Aspenites who are opposed to the preferred alternative and created a document to provide more information about the project. The project, rather the document, says that not only will the preferred alternative do little to expedite traffic coming in and out of town and negatively impact the Marolt slash Thomas open space, but it is also not the best option. The group suggested reopening the conversation, which has not been done since the mid-1990s this year, to consider other alternatives and, quote, explore ways to replace the existing Castle Creek Bridge with a safer and more useful structure that can accommodate three lanes. Other suggestions included a pedestrian underpass at the 8th Street and Hollam Street bus stop, a roundabout at Cemetery Lane, and another bridge where Smuggler Street becomes Power Plant Road. In the next phase of the project, the city would transition from an informational to a responsive outreach format meaning that the city would still communicate with the citizens who reached out, but would not necessarily hold open houses or events. The council said they supported as much additional community outreach as possible and asked staff to continue engaging with the public. Council members were also ultimately supportive of answering some of the community's larger questions before moving forward with selecting a response to a request for proposals or approving funding, uh, rather, or approving project funding. Oh, they said that there seemed to be many lingering questions and requested more information about options that would allow the S-curves to remain in use on inc- rather incorporating pieces of the Aspen Institute Mobility Study, a 2017 document meant to create a vision for transportation and mobility in the Upper Roaring Fork Valley by 2035, existing emergency evacuation plans and Information from the Colorado Department of Transportation. My ultimate goal here is to give our community a choice, Mayor Torre said, so regardless of what I think or what I feel or what I want, uh, what I want to get is, the, is giving our community the, abil- the ability to choose their future and their direction staff will return to a future council meeting with more information and to seek feedback on how to move forward with a community dialogue before the schematic design process the concert, uh, the conversation will most likely be brought back after the next city council is sworn in following the march 4 municipal election in the meantime Tory encouraged community members to continue reaching out to the city and the council with feedback and questions Questions about the project can be answered via email at castlecreekbridge at gmail And more information is available at castlecreekbridge.com. And now indoor golf comes to Carbondale. Simulator facility holds soft opening on Saturday. Article by Rich Allen. The winter season in the Roaring Fork Valley is great for skiers and snowboarders, but it leaves golfers out to dry all the courses close forcing Valley residents to travel to Grand Junction if not farther to hit the links Kyle McGee owner of optimum golf along with Brad Alston is looking to change that on Saturday the indoor golf company held a soft opening of its new Carbondale location its first outside of the Denver Metro area at launch the converted workshop space most recently a CrossFit business boasted two simulators utilizing infrared and photometric sensing with a projector system to enable golfers to play virtual versions of prestigious golf courses or practice their swings in a climate-controlled setting. McGee said that there are no other businesses like it in the Valley. He said that some of the clubs have a simulator but access is limited. If you do a survey on the other simulators in the area, there's certainly nothing like this, McGee said. The big gist about the operation is we're here for everybody. We want beginners, advanced players. The staff here will be trained to accommodate anyone and everyone to have a good time. It's rudimentary now with two simulators set up on the base floor and a homemade plywood counter, but the vision is much bigger with an additional simulator, a full shop, club fitting, facility and big screen TVs in the works to eventually more closely match the appearance of three other locations in and around Denver. Mickey started the first Optimum Golf in 2019 in the Denver area, adding two more facilities, most recently in the River North Art District in 2021. A former hockey player, he experienced a career-ending injury and was advised by a friend to try a driving range. After one swing, he caught the bug. He traded in all of his hockey equipment and got a basic golf setup. Roughly 10 years later, probably ten years later he is a teaching pro and a PGA member aiming to provide a service that introduces new people to golf and develops players' skills Like the other Optimum locations, McGee is seeking to add teachers to provide lessons. The shop will also provide club fitting services in-house, as well as a merchandise store. It will be outside food and drink friendly, and McGee said Optimum is the process of applying for a beer and wine license. The tracking system used at Optimum gives feedback on ball travel distance, speed, spin, and launch angles. It also tracks the club face, giving instant data on swing path and ball contact. The system uh, allows for training at different altitudes, which alter a ball's flight and distance. Users can bring their own clubs and balls. Outside of pure data collection, it allows player it allows playing rounds of golf at every course you'd want to play mcgee said though they may have different names than the ones you know he he added he's hoping to add local courses namely uh, river valley ranch into the platform the goal isn't to replace outdoor golf on a course mcgee said but to provide cheaper access to the game Rental rates for the simulators run from $25 for a half hour and $50 for a full hour, with potential for a discounted rate through April. McGee said it takes an average person about 45 minutes to play 18 holes on a simulator. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to score be a scratch golfer and that's kind of what we're about, McGee said. It's about golf for everyone, access for all. Fifty dollars to play 18 holes at Augusta or Pebble Beach. The Carbondale location was originally intended to launch in November last year but saw it delayed due to some logistical issues. In February it'll be open Wednesday through Sunday Starting hours are 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. on weekdays, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. on weekends. Once again, in February, uh, it'll be open Wednesday through Sunday. Starting hours are 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. on weekdays and 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. on weekends. McGee is aiming for a proper opening on March 1. It's located at 826 Colorado Highway 133. In between ragged mountain sports and budget tires in Carbondale. More information, including booking, is available at theoptimumgolf.com. And now, commentary by Steve Skinner. It takes 13 seconds. You choose. Another column about how Aspen lost her soul. Not this time. It would be an easy thing to do. And I could point at stuff, and remember stuff, and brag about stuff, and despair at stuff, but I won't. She's in your hands now. Aspen is defined by who is here at the moment, on this day, and by what you decide to do with this day. Because it takes about 13 seconds to decide if you are going to be part of the solution or a big part of the problem and each of us must decide how it's going to go today changing oneself is the only option especially considering that changing someone else is a lot of work i can't even change my dog but every once in a while it's worth looking inside to ask if happiness is dependent on someone else and what we might do rather and what we might want them to do how constantly disappointing I made it work in Aspen for a long time. To make it as anything other than a rich person in Aspen, you have to change your perspective. It takes work. Lowering the expectations is a good start. Many times I'd find myself on an 8 a.m. chairlift on my way to flip burgers and I'd take stock of my surroundings. Then I'd realize that the air on the chair was all mine to breathe. I had an elusive exclusive. Sure I was going to flip burgers but it was on top of the world Sure people can be jerks but I was often pleasantly surprised by the local people who I wanted to know having rather by the local people who I wanted to know having space and respect for me regardless of my financial limitations or I'd ride my motorcycle up the face of Aspen Mountain and fly over the nearby peaks, no one to slow me down. I remember one of my favorite moments soon after I moved to Aspen. I was in the back seat of a car on a summery fall, summery fall day. We were zipping up Castle Creek Road. I had the window down and the wind in my face. I remember feeling that I'd never, uh, that I'd never felt freer. I could do whatever I wanted, and I did. As long as I have a soul, I can't say that Aspen's is lost. Aspen is there, full of dreams, memories, possibilities, opportunities, art, nature, theater, radio, newspapers, music, bicycles, skiing, rivers, history, beautiful people, and sushi bars. The land of opportunity, still in my heart and down in the archives of the Aspen Historical Society. When I look in on the Aspen enclosure from my outside perch, I still see some of the same folks, and I still hear a lot of the voices that are passionate about what Aspen was, is, and could be. Some of the struggles are the same. The entrance to Aspen? Aspen's biggest problem continues to be too many vehicles doing the dance within city limits. I often wondered what the town would be like without the, without all the benzene ballet. But that's just a fantasy. Traffic is nothing new. Same, same, trucks, deliveries, single occupancy, SUVs, buses, luxury vehicles. The only thing that's new is the growing fleet of Teslas quietly whisking the beautiful people into positions around town. I'd offer solutions, but it's all been said. Some want to accommodate the vehicles and some want to turn them away at the Maroon Creek Bridge. It's impossible to agree upon a solution. Aspen's biggest asset continues to be the great outdoors and many of the great people who truly call Aspen home. I'm not talking about the visitors, the second homeowners and people from Vail. Some of you are fine, But can you imagine what it's like to be here full-time? It takes appreciation and dedication, and if you are a sensitive human, there are many organizations and causes to join that will heal your soul and inspire friendships. It's easy to get pissed off, frustrated or depressed, especially when you are in the embrace of deprivation, trying to live in the shadow of the castles that can be frustrating. Thinking that the castle owners could change the world, but instead they are throwing parties in Aspen. Remember, you can't change someone else. Unless you are catering, you may never get to stand on that deck with a drink in your hand. Take heart, because you don't need to own anything to find a good view, a warm drink, and a good friend. Relax, it's Aspen. Steve Skinner can be reached at moogzuki at gmail.com. And now, reading from the Wednesday, February 15 edition of Aspen Daily News Online. Aspen Council Approves Organics Waste Diversion Ordinance on First Reading. Restaurants, businesses, community would be required to compost in phased approach. Article by Megan Weber. The Aspen City Council unanimously adopted an ordinance on first reading during Tuesday's regular meeting that will require organics waste diversion within city limits to be implemented over a five-year period. Ordinance 4 would create a mandatory program for diverting organic waste by composting or donating food for human consumption, animal feed, and other acceptable purposes, according to a memorandum. Participants could choose to compost rather through an existing compost hauler or divert their waste another way which would require them to find an alternative method of transporting and rehoming the organics. The program would be rolled out in phases over the next five years beginning with Aspen restaurants this year and then expanding to other commercial businesses in 2026 and finally to the public within Aspen city limits in 2028. Currently, participation in organics waste diversion in aspens is voluntary. Waste diversion and recycling program administrator Ainsley Broston Smith said the program is aligned with the city's rather the city council's climate goals, which included reducing organic material going to the landfill by twenty five percent by twenty twenty five and by one hundred percent by twenty fifty. Our goals of 25% by 2025 are not going to be reached if we continue at a voluntary participation rate. Brosnan Smith said, we've had voluntary participation in composting for the last 10 years, and we've only seen a three to 4% diversion of organic material on an average each year. The city has a pool of $100,000 available in its 2023 budget to purchase steel-certified wildlife-proof receptacles for organic material collection in the commercial core. The city will also purchase indoor receptacles for restaurants to use during food preparation. Councilwoman Rachel Richards suggested that funding should also be made available for power washing the outdoor receptacles on a periodic basis. Brosnan Smith added that the city will focus on an educational approach to encourage businesses to participate, and staff will educate the community on the basics of what organic material is, what can be composted, and how to dispose of it. Businesses also will be able to obtain signage from the city to post educational materials around their space. A penalty assessment is included in the code and the city will have the ability to write tickets for non-compliance. Council members were supportive of the program and the effort to increase organic diversion. Councilman Ward-Heinstein said he thought the five-year phasing approach was too slow and said he would like to see a quicker pace. If we could phase it in more quickly, I think that would be better for our environment, he said. Council members also supported more community outreach to increase awareness about what goes where. I'm not sure which compostable paper I should be putting in there versus the recycling container, Richard said. I think outreach to the general community will help the restaurants feel they're participating in something that we're all doing and we're all interested in, but then also just to help the rest of us understand a little better how to do it. If the council passes Ordinance 4 on second reading, Brosnan Smith said the city will use the next six months to conduct a public outreach campaign to educate the community before it is implemented. After that six-month period, restaurants would be required to participate. The city currently works with two haulers, Evergreen, Zero Waste, and Mountain Waste and Recycling to transport organic materials to the landfill. Participants in the new program would have the option of working with either company or finding an alternative method. Brosnan Smith added that the city expects the program to bring some cost benefits to restaurants, but businesses will need to begin transitioning their services and working with their trash haulers and each other to make sure they are in compliance with ordinance 4. More information about organics diversion is available at aspen.gov/359/scraps-compost-program. Staff will c- return to the council for a second reading on February 28 community members will have an opportunity to comment about the program during the public hearing. And now look at housing news. Design estimate for Phillips at 1.75 million to 5.25 million. Big decisions loom this summer for affordable housing project. Article by Scott Condon. Pitkin County's next big affordable housing project will require a costly investment even before the actual homes get built. The county is working on a plan to add stick built units. That's right, stick built units to the Phillips Mobile Home Park which was purchased for 6.5 million dollars in 2018 along Lower River Road. County staff is working on a plan to add roughly 35 new units while retaining many of the mobile homes and potentially uh, subtracting a few. The project would result in about 73 units, new and old though the numbers could be adjusted. The project entails more than building affordable housing, according to G.R. Fielding, uh, County Engineering and Construction Director. A wastewater treatment plant will be required to serve the housing enclave. Pitkin County has submitted application to the state of Colorado for a permit to discharge treated water into the Roaring Fork River the county also needs to add water storage and prepare a water augmentation plan for the site the project cost is estimated at 35 million dollars fielding said the design is expected to be five percent to 15 percent of the total cost creating creating an expense between 1.75 million and 5.25 million dollars i'm anticipating we're not going to be near the top end of that Fielding told commissioners during a Tuesday work session, adding that he hopes the prediction doesn't come back to, quote, hit me in the face. So far, county commissioners have budgeted $880,000 for the design. They, just for the design? 880,000 for the design, okay. They will be asked in April to decide on total number and types of units and the architectural styling. A final design must be approved by midsummer 2023 to keep the project on track. They will also, uh, they will be asked in July or August to decide on pricing of the units. The commissioners have faced pressure from the Aspen City Council to help address the upper Roaring Fork Valley's affordable housing shortage. City officials lobbied the commissioners last year to go to voters to seek a permanent funding source for affordable housing efforts. The commissioners declined, but the request triggered internal discussions about pursuing affordable housing projects and overall philosophy on affordable housing. Phillips Mobile Home Park emerged as the logical project for the commissioners to pursue since it already owned the property. Commissioner Steve Child said Tuesday that investing in the design could result in savings in the construction process. He said the county should, quote, not be scared away by the big budget for the the design. Fielding said another check and balance will be bringing in a consultant from the contracting world to help during the design phase. When you work with a builder earlier, you make fewer changes later, he said. The commissioners didn't delve deeply into the design of the stick-built units on Tuesday, though Commissioner Francie Jacober expressed her shock to see roughly as much square footage in the new units dedicated to garages and storage as to living space. Why are we building garages for affordable housing? Jacober asked. It's a lot of what I consider wasted space. Other commissioners and staffers noted that people have lots of toys and other things they want to store. If there isn't adequate storage, items will just be stored outside the units. It is definitely the way Americans are right now, (laughs) Jacober acknowledged. We have Too much stuff, and now we're doing architectural designs to accommodate our too much stuff. I'm not happy about it, but I get it, Jacober concluded. And now a look at News in Brief. APCHA Board Plans Right Sizing Discussion the Aspen Pitkin County Housing Authority Board of Directors will continue discussions today that would have been last Wednesday for listeners about a proposed right sizing swap pilot program the program would allow homeowners who would like to downsize or upsize to swap units with another homeowner and APCHA would allow five total swaps in the first year of the program on February 1 the board asked staff to bring back a finalized proposal for a first reading that includes details such as program rules occupancy and age requirements for dependents today's presentation again last wednesday for our listeners willing, it, that included those details as well as what information APCHA will require from people who are interested in swapping when they apply for the program such as names and contact information according to a memorandum all matches that meet all APCHA requirements will be entered into a lottery every two months and lotteries will run until all five swaps have been made households will be able to swap one category above or below their current unit and APCHA's goal is to satisfy occupancy requirements in both units The board may take a vote on the issue. The APCHA meeting began at 4 p.m. in the Pitkin Board of County Commissioner's Meeting Room, County Administration Building at 423 East Main Street in Aspen. The meeting also was publicly accessed via Zoom. And now part of Midland Avenue to close for sewer work. The Basalt Sanitation District wants drivers, business owners, and residents to be aware of a sewer line installation that will be undertaken downtown between February 20 and roughly April 5. The work will be conducted on Midland Avenue between the Roaring Fork River Bridge and the intersection with Two Rivers Road. The project will close Midland Avenue between the Basalt Regional Library and Two Rivers Road from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday, a news release from the Sanitation District says, from 5 p.m. and 7 a.m. Monday through Friday and all day and night, Saturday and Sunday, there will be one lane of traffic controlled by traffic light. All parking along this section of Midland Avenue will be closed. Drivers are encouraged to enter Basalt via the Up Valley and Down Valley intersections of Highway 82 and Two Rivers Road. Residents in business of Gold Rivers Court will have controlled access to their parking lot during the sewer line project. The project is necessary because the sewer lines are 50 years old. According to Ian Quillen, administrator for the Basalt Sanitation District, maintaining infrastructure saves money for the district's customers over the long run, he said. Project updates and more information can be found at basaltsanitation.org slash midland underscore avenue underscore two underscore rivers underscore sewer underscore project slash And now, reading from the Thursday, February 16th edition of Aspen Daily News Online. Basalt wary of Polis' proposal for affordable housing. Governor suggests cities, towns, give up some zoning control to improve housing options. Article by Scott Cotton. Basalt doesn't want to surrender its control over zoning to answer Colorado Governor Jared Polis' statewide call for more affordable housing. Basalt Town Manager Ryan Mahoney received a green light from the Town Council Tuesday night to send a letter with concerns to Polis. There's an effort afoot in this year's legislative session to override local zoning rules related to affordable housing mahoney said this is really concerning generally speaking we have a tradition of local control in this state and i think local municipalities do a good job of regulating their own zoning rules i think the town of basalt and other municipalities in this state for in the state for that matter would be better served from more resources from the state Polis devoted extensive time on Colorado's need for affordable housing in his State of the State address on January 17. He said state voters approval last November of Proposition 123, which will dedicate millions of dollars to affordable housing construction in coming years, was a good first step. But we can't just buy our way out of this. We have to break down government barriers, expand private property rights, Expand private property rights and reduce regulations to actually construct more housing options at a lower cost So all Coloradans can thrive Polis said in his address Polis is a Democrat and both chambers of the state government are dominated by Democrats the discussion mirrors debates that have sprung up recently in the middle Roaring Fork Valley during reviews of major development projects Some developers have argued that greater density is the best opportunity to provide affordable housing units. Some developers in unincorporated Eagle County as well as Basalt have contended that they should receive density bonuses for proposing development located close to public bus stops. Opponents have countered that a marginal increase in affordable housing isn't worth granting approvals for a bunch of expensive free market housing that adds to the worker and housing shortage in the Valley. In addition, residents who have earned their share of the pie are reluctant to surrender quality of life for the sake of higher density. Mahoney said government associations like the Colorado Municipal League and Colorado Association of Ski Towns are monitoring the direction of the legislature and keeping local government officials appraised. Based on those sources, he said, one direction the legislature might travel is establishing minimum densities along transit corridors and near hubs. What this tells me is Highway 82 potentially becomes free game for high-density housing, he said. That doesn't necessarily make good planning sense, according to Mahoney, because while housing along Highway 82 would be located close to transit, other infrastructure and services might be lacking. Mahoney's other concerns with the potential state government direction is allowing multiple units to be built on what local governments had zoned for single-family homes, waiving parking requirements and allowing accessory dwelling units in all zones. The problem with the state's approach is it assumes solutions that would work in Denver and other front-range cities would work the same in small mountain towns such as Basalt. Mahoney said. He doesn't believe that is the case. What a sixplex looks like in Denver and what it looks like in Basalt is very different, Mahoney told the Aspen Daily News prior to Tuesday night's meeting. "Preempting local control on land use issues is a big deal. I think it is a mistake. In the discussion with the Town Council, Mahoney said he believes Basalt's elected officials and town residents have done a good job in the town master plan identifying where development should be allowed. The latest plan was completed in 2020. The town's philosophy is to pursue metered growth, Mahoney said. We're planning out our infrastructure to slowly but surely accept new growth. When a short circuit of our rules, rather with a short circuit of our rules, I would be worried that the town would bear the burden of trying to catch up with service delivery. Mahoney also said the town is making strides on affordable housing with 300 units built and 66 in the pipeline. Demand, of course, is substantially greater than supply in Basalt and elsewhere in the Roaring Fork Valley. A study released in 2019 forecasted a deficit of about 5,700 affordable housing units in the Roaring Fork Valley region, including parts of the Interstate 70 corridor by 2027. The Greater Roaring Fork Regional Housing Study estimated that Basalt was short about a thousand units at that time for affordable, rather, for housing attainable for households making eighty percent of less of the area median income. I'll read that again. The Greater Roaring Fork Regional Housing Study estimated that Basalt was short about a thousand units at that time for housing attainable for households making eighty percent of less of the area median income. The deficit was 1,600 units for households under 120 percent of the AMI, this study said. Mahoney's letter to Polis said adding affordable housing cannot be the only goal driving the town's decisions. Other important factors include people and community character, resilient and sustainable environment, and maintainable civic and community services. Taking any of these themes and asserting priority over the others risks a future for our town that is out of balance and unable to meet the service expectations of our residents and businesses, the letter states. The letter can be viewed in its entirety at www.basalt.com dot net slash agenda center slash view file slash agenda underscore zero two one four two zero two three dash one three four three by clicking on the link five a dash letter to be sent to Governor Paulus. Councilwoman Elise Hotl said the state government is raising good things for us to discuss as a community, but she didn't necessarily want to surrender local zoning control. Councilman David Knight said we all agree affordable housing is important but we want local solutions, local control to do that. We just need help. That's the big thing to emphasize. The town's letter concludes by urging the state to provide funding to help build affordable housing rather than overriding local zoning. Mahoney said he believes, from talks with his peers in other Roaring Fork Valley towns, that they will also express their concerns to Polis. The Colorado Sun recently reported that several front-range cities were concerned about a possible legislative effort to remove local control over zoning. And now Anderson Arts Ranch is hot off the press. Center to host event for new exhibition on Friday. Open to the public. Article by Jacqueline Reynolds. For the first time in a while, Anderson Ranch Arts Center is presenting an exhibition of all printmaking works. Titled Hot Off the Press, the show features prints created by renowned artists through the Anderson Ranch Editions program. Currently on view at the Center's Patton Mallott Gallery, the show opened earlier this month and will remain up through March 10. This Friday, the ranch is hosting an opening reception for Hot Off the Press from 5 to 6 p.m. in the gallery space. The event was free and open to the public. The show is a compilation of prints by ten different artists. Each featured artist has visited the ranch at some point in the past few years to work in the Patent Print Shop on campus and engage in the printmaking medium. The prestigious program called Anderson Ranch Editions is under the current direction of Master Printer Brian Schur, S-H-U-R-E Sure explained that Hot Off The Press is the first editions showcase to be held at the ranch in the last four or so years. This is to sort of show what we've rather what's been going on in the program Sure said. It does give a good cross-section of most of the kind of media that we offer so there are prints that are screen printing, etching or intaglio printing, relief and lithography, and also stencil printing. All of the works on display are available to purchase and some have already been sold," sure said. He noted that in most of the cases with these prints they can be made into multiples, though a handful of them are monoprints, he said, which means the image can only be made once. Schur explained how the additions program dates back to 1978, when the first print shop was set up on a dirt floor in the basement of where the Anderson Ranch Welcome Center sits today. The director explained how, from the start, the program attracted not only printmakers, but all kinds of different artists, who would want to try out their ideas in a different medium he said. This program is pretty unique in terms of print publishing, Sure said, because it's been so varied in the way it worked and because it just was, and still is, I think, more about artists coming and doing something new than about the very specific and very different, rather difficult, world of print publication, which is financially fraught. Schur is a renowned master printer whose own work is in numerous public and private collections globally. He's taught at the Rhode Island School of Design, Brown University, and Cornell University, and has led workshops and classes in studios around the world. When Schur came on as the Editions Director for Anderson Ranch about five years ago, he said he tried to gather as much information from the previous printers. As director, Shore wanted to maintain the ranch's artist-centered, open approach to the printmaking process. And what I've tried to do is work with artists who work in different ways, Shure said, and not have a sort of overarching Anderson Ranch Edition style of print or approach to printmaking, but a very open approach to work in whatever way works best for the artists over the years sure has worked with many different artists including the ones whose prints are now finalized and featured in hot off the press in each case the artist comes with an idea or some ideas and usually those ideas evolve and the artist gets to a place they've never been before which is exciting and new for them sure said it's all about them and it's about their ideas and At least, in my mind, it's never about the final product. It's about the process that they go through while they're here, which is a process of exploration and of problem-solving for them about their imagery and their ideas. Artist Elliot Hundley can attest to this creative process, which has taken effect for him under Shure's direction a multidisciplinary artist based in Los Angeles. Hundley has spent three summers at Anderson Ranch, and two of which were residencies in the printmaking program. He said he views this, rather, his time at Anderson Ranch as being about exploration rather than production, noting Schuer's reputation as a printmaker. For me, the real gift was a collaboration. Brian is a master printer who knows about all the options materially that we can make Hundley said and you know I'm not so much interested in printmakers as I am people who produce artist ideas but I'm interested in the way a printmaker can generate ideas with me and find new forms or new ways of working through his collaboration with Shure Hundley's been able to discover new ways of working, he said. The artist has brought those methods back with him to his projects and studio in L.A. Hundley's prints, of which were created during his time at the ranch, are part of the current edition's show. Other featured artists include John Buck, Eleanor Carucci, Robert Kushner, Steve Luck, Hiroki Mononu that's M-O-R-I-N-O-U-E, Shanna and Robert Park Harrison, Simonette Camina. that's Q-U-A-M-I-N-A, and Claire Rojas and Tom Sachs. The Hot of the Press reception took place on Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. in the Patton Mallott Gallery at Anderson Ranch. For more information or to register for the free event, visit AndersonRanch.org. And now, a look at News in Brief. Injured worker files lawsuit over house explosion. A Carbondale man who was injured in an explosion at a construction site off of McLean Flats Road on February 3, 2022, has filed a lawsuit against Black Hills Energy and three companies working on the house. Diego Gonzalez was working as an independent contractor at 173 Slalom Path, Aspen, when the natural gas explosion occurred, according to his lawsuit. He was arranging tools in an upstairs kitchen when an explosion occurred in the mechanical room directly beneath the kitchen. The explosion threw Gonzalez into the air like a rag doll the lawsuit said. He slammed his head on a ceiling approximately 22 to 25 feet above the floor. Gonzalez was knocked unconscious and when he came to he couldn't feel his legs, the lawsuit said. He was extracted from the house by emergency medical responders and taken to Aspen Valley Hospital in critical condition and flown to St. Anthony's Hospital in Denver for treatment of a broken of rather broken bones in both legs, head trauma, and various other injuries. He remained at St. Anthony's for 30 days, according to the lawsuit. His medical bills as of late 2022 exceeded $833,000, according to the lawsuit. Gonzalez is currently unable to work and faces ongoing medical issues, the lawsuit claimed. The Gonzalez's are represented by attorneys Michael Fox and Ryan Kalamaya. The lawsuit was filed against Black Hills Energy, Young Services, LLC, R&A Enterprises of Western Colorado, Inc., and Skyline Mechanical, Inc., for alleged negligent acts related to the explosion. The lawsuit alleges that the mechanical room wasn't properly ventilated when construction work was performed and that a gas line wasn't properly bled, leading to the explosion of natural gas. Gonzalez is seeking a judgment in an amount to be determined at trial for past and future medical expenses, past and future lost wages, and other alleged losses. His wife, Jessica, is seeking compensatory damages for loss of consortium. The lawsuit was filed in Pitkin County District Court. Thank you for joining us for Aspen Daily News. My name is Greg Stewart. AINC programming is made possible by the Collins Foundation. If you enjoyed this program,